I suck at rowing, so I just need to row more. That's what most people think when they think about improving the rowing capacity. But really, this results in people continuing to train in terms of energy system, in other words, time domain or the style of mixed modal workouts or metcons that they always do. Therefore, nothing really changes. And if nothing changes, well, nothing changes. So to improve anything, including your rowing capacity, you need to change the way that you train. You need to identify the holes in your current training and mark out a course for the road ahead. So come on, let's get smart about training our limiters. It's time to actually tailor your training and improve your rowing capacity. Hey, it's Ben Wise, and this is The Fitness Movement. The Fitness Movement is brought to you by Zor Fitness. Zor Fitness is my company and my platform to deliver incredible training-related content to people just like you. I don't just podcast. I write in-depth fitness articles. I break down common movements in the sport of fitness. I program workout plans, and I offer one-on-one coaching for competitive and recreational athletes. And the best part is most of what I have on ZorFitness.com is totally free. Check out these resources by going to ZorFitness.com. That's Z-O-A-R Fitness.com. Hope to see you there. And welcome back to my rant on improving your rowing capacity. So today's outline, I'm going to be going through three different parts. Part one, I'm going to be talking about athlete avatars. So basically, why do people want to improve their rowing capacity? I'm going to split up the population. Two is going to be assessing those limiters. So what is actually holding that person back from becoming a better rower? And then for part three, I'm going to silo those limiters into body size plus strength and power. It's going to be like the first one. And the second one's going to be either like aerobic capacity and or muscular endurance. So I'm going to hit both of those silos. I'm going to talk about programming for each one of those, depending on which one of those your limiter actually is. So let's jump into the athlete avatars. So in other words, why does a person actually want to improve their rowing capacity? So rather than us actually trying to address your rowing capacity right off the bat, let's, let's answer the question like, why do you actually care about this? Why is this relevant to you? Because ultimately that's going to impact that your commitment to the goal of you actually getting better and how you go about that, how that fits into your overall lifestyle, etc. So I broke this into what I'll call avatars. So the first one is just someone who's actually a competitor. So there's someone who's competing in the sport of fitness. They do the CrossFit Open. They're doing other online qualifiers. They're doing local competitions. For that person, especially if that person is doing the open or other online qualifiers, rowing is a very big part of online qualifiers. It is the only erg that's on online qualifiers as of now, because back in 2011, CrossFit basically mandated that all the gyms and all the people that want to compete in the open had to get a Concept2 rower. Well, they didn't explicitly say Concept2, but basically that's the only one that they actually accept scores from, as we found out a couple years ago. So if you want to be very good at online qualifiers, or if you want to do well in the open, you basically have to be good on the rower. Like it doesn't really matter if you're any good on the ski erg or the bike or an air runner or something else. Really, the only thing that matters is the rower. And that's one reason if people want to have a higher place in the leaderboard because they're competing, that's the first reason. Number two is just that someone's competitive with themselves and or the other people at their gym. And I think this is true for competitors who are actually competing in online qualifiers as well. And just because someone doesn't identify as a competitor does not mean that they are not competitive with themselves or with other people in their gym. So you can certainly be competitive with yourself and like trying to improve your 2K time over a period of time or trying to improve a certain benchmark workout that you set out for yourself that you're trying to get a, a better score on. Even if you aren't necessarily identifying as a competitor, I think almost everyone has that competitive aspect to them. And even if you're not necessarily someone who's doggy dog, super competitive by nature, there is sort of a camaraderie effect that happens if you're just socially competitive and like a fun sense with the people around you. 
And then the third avatar is basically just an all-around fitness badass where you want capacity in every single area as much as you can. You want to be the best version of yourself and you want to be good at as many things concurrently at the same time as you can. So in other words, that'd be called GPP, like general physical preparedness. I think GPP is a weird term because who really wants to say like, yeah, I'm kind of generally okay at everything. Like, no, like people want to be as good as they can at what they're doing. Like they're putting all this time into it. You want to be as good as you can. And yeah, I can create these three different avatars, but I think for the most part, people want sort of the same things where they want community. They want to be respected within their group. They want to feel attractive in their own skin. They want to be functional in the raw sense where they just want to be able to actually do things and have versatility with their body and their physical skills. Because whether you're at the CrossFit Games or you're just someone who comes into the gym for the very first time and you actually have never really worked out before or been on a steady training program, regardless of where you're at, their fundamental things that they want are actually very much so aligned. So for these different avatars, the way that they actually train isn't going to be necessarily dramatically different. So say we have someone who's a GPP athlete versus someone who wants to be at a very high level competing. It's not necessarily going to be dramatically different if they have the same limiter. So if someone has the same limiter, maybe they're limited by uh, their cardiac output or something like that, that's their limiter. Well, then actually their training could potentially look fairly similar. And it's just more so the degree that they're committed and the sacrifice that they're going to be willing to make to reach that goal. And the quote that I hear all the time where it's like, things differ by degree, not kind. I think that quote rarely actually applies, but I think it does here. And why is this the case? Well, for one, mobility is low. Like you really don't need great positions to be able to row fairly well. Skill is relatively low. Like you have to have a degree of ability to be able to sequence the pool in a certain way, but compared to like a squat snatch or something like that, or a muscle up, it is relatively low skill. And strength is low. Like you have to be strong and powerful to be able to perform well, but strength is sort of a barrier to entry like a pay to play sort of sense doesn't exist. Like you can always get on and just start moving on the rower. So in that sense, the saying that, yeah, things differ by degree, not kind for once, actually, I think it applies here. So let's talk about assessing your limiters. So in other words, what is actually holding you back from becoming a better rower? So I got four different items that I'm going to go through that I think are probably limiters for a lot of people. Number one is just body size. So in other words, the height and weight that you are. And in general, bigger is going to be better here. So if we went to a crew event, a rowing event, you're going to see that most of the people that actually compete in crew or rowing are going to be much bigger and specifically taller than the field. So for crew, you're actually moving yourself in a boat, but that's not the case for an online qualifier where you're powering an erg, you're spinning a flywheel. Whereas if you're on the water, you are moving your own body weight and your own body weight will create more friction if you're not in a good body composition. So the goal for a crew member is to maximize power to body weight ratio, which we talked about before, and we talked about that in the running episode. But for an erg, really, bigger is going to be better. And of course, this comes up to a point, like up to a certain point that is helpful. As long as you're able to oxygenate all those tissues and you'll be able to hold up in terms of your cardiac output, your pulmonary function, your respiratory mechanics, and you're able to hold that and continue to oxygenate all of that tissue, all that extra tissue that you could potentially be adding on, then that's a good thing. Whereas if you have too much tissue and you occlude really fast, so you have a lot of muscular tension, so you're not actually able to create sustainable movement because you're occluding all the time because you have all this muscular tension and contraction uh, potential that that is actually going to slow you down. So bigger is better to a certain extent, as long as you're able to actually supply all that tissue with oxygen. 
So practically for a lot of people, they're not going to manipulate their body composition just to improve their rowing performance. But if you're someone who is trying to like, maybe you're a bubble sanctionals athlete and you really want to get to the games, you're super committed to that. And you're maybe a 190 pound male and you can afford to gain five or 10 pounds in order to improve your rowing enough and your weightlifting enough that'll help put you into the right tier that you can actually improve, then that might be an option for you. Especially if you are someone who's on the smaller side and you don't mind getting bigger, that can certainly be helpful. You just got to take into account what else that's going to impact and when you should be doing that in the course of your season, which in that case, if you're trying to manipulate your body weight, I would go listen to episode 12. That being said, our second classification of limiters is going to be just strength and power. So likely someone who's small is going to have a strength and power limiter. That's not always the case, but it's much more often the case. But if someone doesn't want to get bigger, they don't want to add muscle mass to their frame, or they think it's not worth the cost benefit of how it's going to impact their performance overall, then we can just add strength and power without having to add muscle mass. And that's something that people get confused a lot. You do not have to add muscle mass to get stronger. There's plenty of other ways that you can increase your your strength, your power without having to add more muscle tissue. So the first thing talking about strength and power is what distance are we actually talking about? So are we talking about like strength and power for maybe a 250 meter row time trial where you just don't have the absolute power that you need in order to be able to hit a certain pace threshold on something like that, which truly doesn't get tested too often in a sport? Or is it more so that you need the speed endurance, the power endurance to be able to continue to move quickly over repeat pools, which then we're maybe actually talking about aerobic power. If we're talking about a 1K, 2K, 3K, 5K, so for all of those, we're going to have a unique profile what's going to allow us to get better at that thing. The other thing we have to ask ourselves is, is this a time trial? So all those distances that I just mentioned, it's like you hop on the rower and you row the whole time, and that's the only factor that you've going on. It is a time trial where that's not how that gets measured in our sport vast majority of the time. Like very rarely do you have a time trial where it's just rowing. I and mean, if that does happen, usually it's an event where you already had to be pretty high level athlete in terms of mixed motor work to be able to get there. Like it might happen like the games level or sanctionals level much more often than it's going to happen at an online qualifier. So again, we have to ask, is this a time trial issue or is this a Metcon issue where it's in mixed work and that's what's the limiter? And even with that, it gets very complicated. And maybe you do really well on rowing if it's paired with upper body pressing movements, but as soon as it goes to an upper body pool where there's movement interference, that's when you blow up. Or maybe perfectly fine if you're having to squat, but when you go to hinging mechanics and you have to do something like a deadlift and a row, okay, then you blow up. Or whatever the case is, a unique pairing of movements Again, there's a million different combinations for mixed mode work, and that's what makes our sport really cool. But at the same time, we have to understand that there are a multitude of limitations that could come up in all of those different scenarios. Number three is aerobic capacity, and that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. I just use that because I think people understand what I'm saying, but really what I mean here is either aerobic power or aerobic endurance, and those things are not the same. Someone who is an aerobic power athlete, they could do really well on like maybe a 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 minute time domain workout like you're probably going to see a lot in the open, but they might do really poorly on something like Murph where it's maybe a 40 minute time domain. So only in the CrossFit world is a 15 or 20 minute event considered endurance. Like for the rest of the world, like a 30, 60, 90 minute time trial is just starting to scrape the surface of what the endurance world's going to do. So if we're talking about aerobic endurance, these are all things that are extending into a much longer time domain, or they could extend into a much longer time domain. Just because you are rowing at a 
two hour time trial pace does not mean that you have to do it for two hours. That'd be a maximal effort for most of the time. You don't want to go to a maximal effort in training. So like maybe you do a 30 minute row at a two hour time trial pace, or if we're talking about aerobic power, we're not just going to do a 5k time trial all the time. We're also going to break that up and segment it where you can get more total time at a slightly faster pace. And that's really the biggest benefit of intervals is that you can hold a higher pace for longer by inserting these little breaks throughout. So as we're trained, depending on what type of athlete we have, we might start in aerobic endurance and move our way towards aerobic power, or depending on the athlete, we could start in more aerobic power and move them towards aerobic endurance. And for the most part, if someone's a very powerful athlete, I'm going to have them more so on the endurance and the things where they're doing like LSD, long, slow distance work. But I'm also going to pair that with more cyclical style things that are broken in the shorter time domain. So in other words, they get short breaks. That way they don't have compensatory movement patterns early on, and that allows them to keep moving. And that combination will promote aerobic power. Whereas if you went for that right away, that actually would not be the adaptation. They'd probably get a maladaptation from aerobic power work. Whereas if we have someone who already has that background, they have the aerobic base, they don't need more aerobic endurance work. What they need is speed preservation work where they can hit a certain threshold and keep that for longer. So we need to bump up the intensity for them and have them do more high intensity work and dense pieces on a regular basis. And then number four here is local limiters. So maybe it is your pool and your arms that locally in one particular area get really fatigued quickly, even though the rest of your body, your heart, your lungs, your legs, your hinging, all might be fine, but that one particular area, that local limiter is what's going to prevent you from going faster. Or it could be maybe your hinge blows up, or maybe you use your quads for everything. So you use your quads in your row and then they blow up or all the multitude of things that could be going on. So for one, we have to realize that most cyclical work is going to be lower body dominant in the sense that most things that people do, even if they came from an endurance background, like I did triathlon, like the running and the biking, they're almost entirely lower body. Whereas if you did swimming all the time, you're much more likely to have great upper body pulling endurance, where if, if you did a lot of hypertrophy work, you might have great usage in terms of like a capillary bed, the ability to be able to use O2 very fast, but you don't have great longevity in that musculature. You don't have great local muscular endurance. So as I start with an athlete and have them go through onboarding, one of the things that I like to think about is their movement history, not just in terms of like, what have they been doing? Or is this this person generally athletic or not? Like how quickly are they going to respond to this? What kind of volume were they doing in the past? Also like what kinds of movements were they doing in terms of cyclical work, in terms of duration, where are they going to be predisposed to in, in terms of these local limiters? So if I have someone who they did lots of hiking, they did lots of biking, they did lots of running, rucking, all those movements, that's mainly lower body dominant. So they might have issues in local muscular endurance in their upper body. Whereas if I had someone who did uh, lots of skiing or assault bike or kayaking or stand-up paddleboarding or swimming, they're much more likely to have a strong, sustainable pool if they actually go to row. So one of the things that we have to think about is, am I predisposed to having a very strong pool that could wear out quickly? Or have I, in my past, created a sustainable pool that might not be strong enough? And thinking about it through that lens is going to be very helpful in terms of assessing your individual limiters. So a quick recap, number one, body size. Number two, strength and power. Number three, aerobic capacity, which that could be aerobic power or aerobic endurance. And four is the local limiter. So thinking about what's going to wear out quickly. So now let's talk about programming for each of these groups. I'm going to put them into the body size and strength and power as one. And then the other one is the aerobic capacity, which again could be aerobic power or aerobic endurance and muscular endurance. 
So let's start on programming for improving your body size, strength, and total power. How I would recommend doing this is actually not necessarily spending a ton of time on the erg. I mean, obviously, you have to continue to work on developing your, quote, engine as you're actually developing your strength and power. And if you're someone who came from more of an aerobic endurance background, you already have that capacity. It's just more so pushing that towards the powerful side of things. So we can do things that are going to develop and require strength and power, and that could be on the erg or off the erg. So this could be things like power cleans, power snatches, deadlifts. So really, that's any sort of explosive hinging movement. That could be a kettlebell swing, and I actually love doing like a banded Russian swing to really emphasize the hip drive in that. And we could be doing hip transfer box jumps where you're trying to get your hips as high as possible and really drive a lot of power in that movement. You could be doing things like broad jumps, sprinting, strict pull-ups, muscle-ups, uh, bent rows. All these things are going to develop the strength and power that you need in those specific movement patterns, the hinging and pulling movements that you're going to need for rowing. And then we're going to pair this strength work with sprints on the rower. And sprint is going to be more of a loose term here in the sense that it's not necessarily max effort where you're trying to get as fast as you can. You're going to be a super high stroke rate, more so that you are doing really high effort, shorter duration intervals where you can come back and hit that again after a short rest period. And that's going to help transfer you holding a higher pace for a longer period of time because that's what your limiter is. So an example of this might be like 20 rounds of like a 30-30 row. So 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. Say it's your 2K pace minus two to three seconds, a little bit faster than your 2K pace, something like that, where it's going to develop your ability to hold a higher pace for a longer period of time. And often people with a strength or power limiter, they're really sustainable at a certain pace. And as soon as they get above a certain threshold, everything gets out of control where stroke rate might get out of control or breathing might get out of control. We're not able to hold like a one-to-one breath to stroke ratio anymore. And ultimately, this just means that athlete's less efficient at that given threshold. And then we're going to combine that with something like alactic intervals, where we're not actually getting to a painful threshold. We're not super fatigued. We're going to desaturate the muscle of oxygen really quickly. You're going to hit it hard, and then you relax and kind of recharge that battery, so to speak. And then you're probably going to do that 10, 15, 20 or more times in a given session. You can think of this as a max effort pool and almost a full rest and then a repeat. So maybe like an eight out of 10 recovery, and then you're going to hit that again. So that's how I'd attack road training if I was someone who needs more strength and power than not able to hold that pace threshold. And that could also be because of their body size and that'll help them out as well. So for that other person, the person that has the power already who can hold a certain threshold for pace, that's already met. What we need then is more sustainability. So let's just call it again, aerobic capacity, whether it's aerobic power or aerobic endurance, and then combining that with the muscular endurance. So for this person, there's really no way to get around it. You're gonna have to spend a lot more time on the road to develop those qualities. And we can always combine the rowing cyclical work with other elements, whether that's something like an air bike or a ski erg, where depending on someone's limiters, if they're more general um, in terms of like maybe it's a cardiovascular system, that's the issue. Then we can pair that with other things and that'll have enough carryover and that will have a lot of benefit. But for other people, if it is more of a local thing, where it's the specific pattern that's getting tired and fatiguing, then we're just going to have to spend more time in the rower and there's really no way to get around it. So for this person, one of the things I want them to think about is the pairing of qualities that they need. So muscular endurance and aerobic endurance, those things are going to pair best. If you can make the contraction in the pool and the sequencing of that pool aerobic, so making the muscular endurance contractions aerobic, that is going to be the goal. And that's going to ultimately allow for more sustainable movement. So for this person, what often happens is a mistake that I see is people who are super strong and powerful, they'll think what they're doing is aerobic work, but in reality, their muscles creating so much tension that they'll occlude 
and block off blood flow to lead that muscle. And then you're going to get a basically a pump from doing easy aerobic work. And they're putting on more size and more strength from doing aerobic work. And the thing was like, wow, this is great. Like I'm doing all this easy work and I'm still getting stronger and more powerful and adding more muscle mass. And that's just a maladaptation to what you're doing. You're not actually getting the adaptation that you think you're getting from that easy aerobic work because it's not easy aerobic work you're including. So it's actually a more of a lactic environment. And you're actually training the aerobic power and lactic endurance. And that doesn't carry over very well to muscular endurance. And really what we want to do is start on the opposite end where you're doing more aerobic endurance, muscular endurance work at a much longer duration. And then you're going to slowly over a period of time bump up that pace where now you're able to hold a higher threshold without having fatigue come in. So that's going to be the goal there. You're starting in the muscular endurance, aerobic endurance, and then you're going to move towards aerobic power. And for a lot of people who are very powerful, they try to do everything possible to avoid the LSD model, the long, slow distance. And I think really that got demonized in CrossFit for a long time. And certainly the long, slow distance work doesn't have the same intensity and therefore the same sort of stressor and adaptation curve that a much more intense piece would. But it's also a good thing because it allows that athlete to just accumulate so much more volume. One of the things I like to think about is volume dictates density. So if I have 20 muscle-ups for time, I'm going to jump up there and do the entire set unbroken, and then I'm just going to be completely trashed afterwards, but it doesn't matter because I did them all unbroken. Whereas if I have 40, all of a sudden I'm like, hmm, how am I going to break this up? Because I can't hold that density for that long. So I have to think about that a different way. If I have 200 muscle-ups, I'm going to think about that completely different and how I pace that and think about it and the way that I attack it or to a degree don't attack it is going to be dictated by the volume that I have to do. And it's the exact same thing for long, slow distance. If I'm approaching a 10K row versus a 2K row and I'm a very powerful athlete, I'm going to have to treat those completely differently. So the qualities that they're going to develop and the amount of stress that it puts on the body and the way that it puts it on the body is just completely different. And that's what we need to get the adaptations that we want. So in this case, that long, slow distance is really going to help in terms of developing the athlete's stroke volume. So the, the amount that their heart's actually able to pump out in a single beat, the number of mitochondria that there are and the way that they function. So the density and the, their actual way that they're able to produce energy. We can talk about the capillary beds and just increasing capillary perfusion. So getting more capillaries and creating more beds. And we can talk about thermoregulation where people actually get more efficient in terms of like their sweat and the way that they can blow off heat through radiation, evaporation. And all of these things are all going to be a great effect from that person just accumulating work. And if someone is very powerful, that actually might tone down their power just a little bit. And depending on if that person already has the ability to have all the strength that they need, all the power that they need, then that's not an issue and that can actually be helpful. So one of the questions that I think is probably going to come up as people are listening to this is like, what's considered long? So you're saying long, slow distance. What is long? Is long like 20 minutes? Is long like 45 minutes? Is long like a marathon row? And obviously this is definitely a relative because depending who's listening, one person will consider something long like 15 minutes. Another person will consider something long to be like two hours and 15 minutes. It's just completely relative to what your experience in movement is. So I would say in general, this is probably more than 20 minutes. So someone can certainly do like a 5k and just say it's a 20 minute 5k. That would be considered endurance for most people. And even for my athletes and testing, I use a 5k time trial as a basically a means for sustainability and endurance. 
And the good thing about that sort of time domain is it doesn't really lead to mechanical breakdown. Whereas someone sat on the road and they did maybe 15K or it's taking them an hour or maybe a little bit longer than that to complete, then they're going to get to the point where their butt hurts so bad that they don't feel like pulling and they're getting blisters on their hands and they're just really uncomfortable. And that's actually what's preventing them from going faster rather than their aerobic endurance capabilities. And then when they actually get off the machine, they're so tight and stiff and overworked in certain muscle groups that they just are kind of useless for the rest of the day or potentially for multiple days. And obviously that is not the goal. The goal for this easy aerobic work is for you to just be able to continue to add volume over a period of time and for it really not to detract much from your other training. So imagine if I had a really powerful athlete and I'm just trying to improve their aerobic endurance a bit. Maybe I had them do an easy 5K on one morning. The next morning I had them do like a 30 minute air bike at a really easy pace. The next day I had them do really easy uh, ski erg intervals. The next day I had them do some um, double unders and box step ups and some isometric holds and some things like that. And then we kind of cycled through and just kept going through that sort of thing. And you're able to continue to hit that every single day. And it's not mentally draining either. Like where if I had that person row 15K and they did that maybe three days a week, that's going to be mentally draining for that person. Whereas this other format doesn't allow for that near as much and allows for other productive training and allows for full body movement, which are all things that are super helpful and relevant to our sport because this person isn't just trying to improve their rowing. They're trying to get better at all these different skills at the same time concurrently, or at least trying to maintain certain capacities while they improve other ones. But anyway, my point is the goal is to create that aerobic endurance effect, not to just accumulate as much volume as possible. If we can get a better adaptation and less breakdown, that's great. And if we think about our sport, you really aren't required or you know, you have no demand to really go much longer than 20 minutes. Like the average duration of an open workout is 16 minutes. So really you got to be good at rowing for 16 or 20 minutes. So something like 19.1 now is wall balls and rowings, 19 cows, 19 wall balls, back and forth as many rounds as you could get. And that's a really great example of how rowing's got to interplay and more realistic game day type scenarios. The last thing I want to talk about here is if I put an athlete into sort of an aerobic power time trial, where maybe it's a 5k row time trial and it's max effort or it's a very high effort, that's going to have a huge CNS dampening effect for them. So the recovery curve on that is much bigger. It's a lot like the 10 minute assault bike test for max cows where you have to dig really hard and it is truly max effort because there's nothing holding you back in terms of skill. You can go right up against your capacity and you can hold that for a much longer period of time. And that's really where you're going to get the biggest CNS dampening effect. Not so much from strength work unless you're doing crazy volumes. That really hard lactic endurance or aerobic power event, that's really what's going to blunt your CNS and prevent you from adapting over the long term. And if you do that, and it's perfectly fine if you do that because it's part of our sport to be able to test those really hard workouts, just realize that you're going to have to give some sort of rebound or recovery session or flush after that. So there's nothing wrong with as you're transitioning to something like competition prep to be able to move to much harder, close to max effort workouts. That's perfectly fine. Just realize that you have to be much more careful as you program something like that versus if you program a ton of easy aerobic work, depending on that athlete, they might be completely fine and they really don't have to reduce volume and other things nearly as much because that work's not super stressful. There you go. I hope this will help you improve your rowing capacity. And I put a bunch of demo videos into the show notes. 
So go check that out at zorfitness.com slash podcast slash 016. And I also linked to a bunch of resources, including my rowing guide, which has a bunch of technique videos in there for rowing. What I learned from rowing 5K a day for 30 days. I'm rowing for calories versus meters. What damper setting is right for you. So the test that I use for determining drag factor for my athletes. So go check all that stuff out. It's all in the show notes. As always, it is at zwarfitness.com slash podcast slash the episode number and a three-digit number. So in this case, 016. Hey, it's Ben again, and I wanted to take a minute to talk about our online training program, The Protocol. The Protocol is for athletes who want to train for the sport of fitness. It's programmed by me, and it's my best attempt at preparing athletes with varying strengths and weaknesses for the demands of the sport. And I do this through the use of silos, which basically means I segment parts of the program based upon athletes' ability in a particular area. So for example, an element of the program this fall on Tuesdays and Thursdays was gymnastics-focused training. And there are four different silos, so athletes could choose to work on chest bars or muscle-ups or handstand push-ups or handstand walks. In other words, we are all doing the same core program, but there are ways to individualize it on a weekly basis. And as part of the program, I also include coaches' notes, technique videos, and educational resources almost daily. My goal is to not just have this feel like you're doing a workout plan, but to feel like I'm actually coaching you through the process of becoming the best athlete you could be. And having access to the protocol is just part of the benefit of being a pro member. You also get instant access to the vault which is exactly like it sounds. It means that you unlock the ability to be able to download all the programs that I've ever written. So this includes things like Bulletproof Body, which is the accessory work for functional fitness, gymnastics density for the big five, functional thickness, your first muscle up, cyclical supremacy, overhead squat mobility, breath work for the support of fitness, and it could go on and on. And lastly, you get instant access to pro articles, which are on topics that I really want to safeguard from the public and keep for my athletes. Stuff like cycle speeds for CrossFit open movements, strength ratio data analysis, so basically determining your relative weaknesses on strength work, breaking down sanctionals programming or games programming, energy systems testing and analysis, and a whole lot more. And if this sounds like stuff that you're into, you can get a seven-day free trial of Pro. Simply head over to zorfitness.com slash pro. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay the course.